0: Uh, you have a copy of the Scriptures, or there are a paper copy, or you got a phone, open up with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, if you're not certain where Jude is, if you go to the back of your Bible, find the book of Revelation, it's the very last book in your copy of the Scriptures, and just go one book before that. Jude is only going to be one page, though. It's super short, and so it might take you a second to find. Hey, um, I was just thinking about something as we were singing that last song, Holy, 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 Jesus, you are, Jesus, you are. You know, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 4 and Isaiah chapter 6 that right now as we stand or sit in this room that there are multitudes of angels who are flying around the throne of God and who are proclaiming that exact same thing. And the Bible actually says that day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy holy, just over and over proclaiming who God is. One of the things I pray every week when we sing that last song to end our gathering is that we would join in the angels and what they're already singing. And so I just think that's really interesting. When we were just singing that song, um, we weren't just singing it alone, but there were tens of millions of angels in whom we were joining, singing that to, back to God. I just think that's pretty incredible. In the book of Jude, we're starting, oh, PS2. Um, I got this new jacket yesterday for $5. So I know you should be super impressed. I've been like freezing to death all morning. So if halfway through the message, once I start sweating, if I just take this dude off, it's because I'm, I'm like getting really hot up here. All right. But uh, you should be impressed. $5. It's Reebok. I thought it was Starter when I bought it. Y'all remember Starter back in the day? That brand? And I told my wife, I'm like, look what I found. I found a Starter jacket. I'm so excited. She's like, that's Reebok, you idiot. I'm like, oh, well, I still am going to get it because it's $5. But anyways. Hey, the book of Jude is where we're going to be this morning. If you'll stand with me, if you're willing and able in honor of reading God's word, we're going to read just two verses today. And God's word says this in Jude. It says, "Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you." Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, thank you for just that reminder as we were singing a moment ago that we're, we're pro- proclaiming scripture, but we're also joining the angels in what they're already singing to you, because you are holy, holy, holy. God, I pray now as we walk through just these couple of verses in Jude, that your spirit would be among us, that you'd teach us and grow us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Father, to do that, we need open ears to hear directly from you this morning. So God, would you help our ears to be focused today? Father, we don't just want to hear your word, but we pray that your word would change our hearts. And so, Jesus, would your spirit do a sanctifying work in each one of us this morning? And even past that, Father, as we ask each week, I pray that we would be obedient to the truth, to whatever you reveal to us personally this morning. And that we would walk in obedience to Jesus above all else. God, we love you. Thanks for the scripture. Thanks for the gathering of the local church. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in the last house where my family lived a few years ago, uh, about three or four years ago, we had a pretty interesting fall. If you came to that house and you went into our basement, we had a partially finished basement with a sliding glass door right underneath the steps that led to a large storage area and a large like crawl space, unfinished part of our basement. Because it was storage, we didn't make it a habit to go back there very often. But one evening, a few falls ago, I went into that storage area, opened the door, and I noticed on top of one of our green storage tubs was some mouse droppings. I didn't think much of it because many of us have probably experienced that before. So I cleaned up what I could, and then I went, got a sticky trap, and laid it right there on top of that tote and moved along. Didn't think much of it. A couple weeks later, I went down into the basement. I noticed in that storage area, again, getting something out of there, a few more mouse droppings in a couple other different places. Again, didn't think much of it. I I cleaned it up. I took one of those traditional mouse traps, set it up in a couple of places, and moved along. A couple weeks later, you all would have thought I would have caught on by now. I'm actually a pretty slow learner if you didn't know that. I went into that same area. But this time, I didn't notice mouse droppings. I noticed that there were small piles of wax shavings, all over the floors, and I discovered that something had literally eaten dozens of candles that were stored there in our basement. I didn't think much of it. I just set a few traps and I moved along until one evening. You may have heard me talk about this before. My wife and I were sitting in our living room, so right at the top of those steps, and we were watching the movie, the classic Jurassic Park, one of my favorite movies. And we're right at the scene, I'm sitting there on the one end of the couch with my arm up on the back of the couch, and we're right at the scene where the raptors are chasing down the kids in the science lab. It's one of the most intense scenes in all of the movie, I'm sure many of you have seen it before. And man, I'm like, when, with movies like that, action movies, I'm locked in on that kind of stuff, because I'm like, all right, if I ever get in this situation, how would I escape? You know? Like, you've got to figure it out, because you never know if a raptor may catch you in a science lab someday, you just, you're never really sure. And so, man, I'm locked in, like just zoned. And Liz will tell you, I was zoned in. Had my arm up on the the couch. In my peripheral vision, as I'm locked in. I noticed that on my right arm that something gray ran right by me. And in it scurrying by me, that gray thing touched my arm and then took off across the top of the couch. So I did what any tough man would do. I screamed. And I jumped, no joke, Liz could tell you, confirm this with her after the service this morning. I jumped straight into the air, slammed on the floor, screaming at the top of my lungs. Elizabeth, she has no idea what's happening. So she does the same thing. She leapt. that's what we do in our family. We just leap straight into the air. She slams on the floor, and we spent the next half an hour chasing around about a three-inch long mouse in our living room. Eventually, we got it to go outside, by the way. So I went down into our basement, and rather than just glancing, I actually started to move things around. I looked in some of the corners. I looked up into the crawl space, and I discovered that we didn't just have a mice, one mouse. We had like a mouse infestation at that house in the basement. I'm not going to get into details because this will go on the radio, but I took care of them, (laughs) all right? If you ever need help with that, call me. I figured it out, by the way. I was thinking about that this week in relation to Jude, because here's the reality, right? If we're we're not on guard, if we're not paying attention, things can sneak into our lives unnoticed, they slip in, and we don't even realize that they're there. And then over time, what happens when we allow them to slip in is those things make themselves at home, and we don't see them until they become a problem that we have to address. And in this letter, Jude ties that thought process to the local church. That if left unguarded, things, doctrines, people can sneak their way into the life of the local church if we're not paying attention. Throughout the New Testament, we see these individuals called false prophets or false teachers. And here's the agenda it's just the same agenda over and over and over. Look enough like the truth that they go unnoticed in the church. They make themselves at home with the ultimate agenda of destroying and dividing this thing that God has created. Jesus gives a strong warning against this in the Gospels and the divisiveness of false teachers in Matthew 7. He said, Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you. Listen to this, in sheep's clothing. Jesus says, They're gonna look a lot like you. They're gonna be disguised to look like one of one of those thin individuals that's part of the church community. But he says, inwardly, they are ravaging wolves. They seek to destroy. False teachers look often like the rest of the church, but on the inside, their goal is destruction and division, perversion of the gospel, and perversion of doctrine. And Jude encourages us with one word this morning, fight. Your Bible might say, contend for the faith. That we won't stand for and we won't allow false doctrine, perversions of the gospel to come into the local church. We're starting a journey today, as you probably figured out, in the book of Jude. If you're looking at the book of Jude in your Bible, look at it in my Bible. It's one page. It's one of the smallest books contained in the entire scriptures. 25 verses is all that's contained in this simple letter. And it's one of those books that often, I've, I've discovered this, it's in my life too, um, that's a very challenging 25 verses for us to think through. Because Jude covers a lot of things in this book that honestly, over the next eight weeks, we're gonna scratch our heads a little bit trying to figure out what Jude is exactly talking about. We gotta do some deep study. Yet, there's some very practical truth in here. Because again, Jude encourages us to contend or fight for the faith, dismantle, disarm, and remove those things that seek to harm the local church. Paul said this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You may remember this. He told Timothy to make sure that you maintain sound doctrine in the context of the local church. And so what we want to do this week, Joe's really been encouraging me to do this more. When we first approach a book of the Bible, rather than just jumping right in, let's give some background as to what we're reading. Let's make sure we understand who this author was and why they wrote this book so that in the next seven weeks that follow, we're going to have a good understanding as to why Jude even wrote this letter to this church and then look at some very practical application for us as we seek to disarm and dismantle false doctrine that could creep its way into living hope. So first thing, if you're a note taker, Jude starts right out of the gate. Let's just address the question, who is the author? You see it right there in your copy of the scriptures, verse 1, it follows typical New Testament writing style. The author is Jude. If you didn't know this, Jude is actually the short version of the Greek name Judas. I asked myself the question this week, let's just ask ourselves, why didn't he just go by Judas? Why wouldn't he just call himself Judas? Let me give you a little bit of history lesson here. If you remember, toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he had one disciple who betrayed him. Amongst the other 11, what was that guy's name? His name was Judas. The Bible says in Matthew 26, verse 15, that Judas betrayed Jesus, turned him over to the religious leadership to be executed as a criminal for 30 pieces of silver. I'm not much of an expert on history. I'm not much of an expert much on anything, but after an event like that where someone named Judas betrays the Savior of the world for 30 pieces of silver, that event has echoed through the centuries, I think I'd shorten my name to Jude as well. You know, like I don't want to be, I was thinking about it this week, and this is just, again, you guys know my brain kind of runs in some weird directions. I don't think, I'm 36 years old. I've never, 36 years, I've never met somebody named Judas. I've met people named Jesus. I've met all these, but have you ever met somebody named Judas? I think there's a reason for that. And so Jude chooses To go by Jude rather than Judas. That was just free. I hope that's helpful for you. But what do we know about Jude? The author of this letter, he introduces himself in verse 1. What do we know about this guy? I'm here to tell you. Not much. The Bible is actually pretty silent on Jude. Not much about his life and ministry has survived in the Scriptures. You can read some of Paul's letters and some of the Gospels. There's references to Jude in the New Testament, but every time he's referenced, he's referenced in the context of just being one of Jesus' brothers, which we'll get to in just a second. If you were gonna write a biography about Jude, it would actually probably be about four sentences long. Probably wouldn't be a bestseller on the New York Times list. I mean, there's not much known about this guy Jude. Here's what we do know. He wrote this letter about 60-ish years after the ministry of Jesus, but honestly, there's a lot of Bible teachers like, yeah, you know, but honestly, we're just not really sure about that. Okay, we don't know much about Jude when he wrote this letter. Um, history doesn't talk much about him. There's a guy, you may have heard of him, named Josephus. So he was a first century historian. Josephus makes one statement about Jude. Again, let me, let me just preface this. Josephus's writings are not scripture, okay? They're just historical. So we don't claim them as true. We're not 100% positive if this is accurate. I'm just here to tell you, hey, this is what a first century historian said may have happened to this guy that we know as Jude. But Josephus says that Jude ultimately was stoned for his faith. The religious leaders did not like what he preached, and so they stoned him in AD 62. That's about all we know about Jude. But here's a few things in Scripture that we do. First, Jude says at the end of verse 1 that he was the brother of a guy named James. If you were to flip to the left in your Bible a few books, you would see in your New Testament that you have a book of the Scriptures known as James. James, we know, historically and biblically, was the half-brother of Jesus. Let me show you this biblically. Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. Paul, writing to the Galatians churches, said, I didn't see any of the other apostles except who? Except James. And what does he say about him? James, the Lord's brother. Now, not to be too simplistic for us this morning, we're just getting some background context Why could Jesus only have half-brothers? Just think about that for a minute. This is just, we want to make sure our doctrine is correct. Why could Jesus only have half-brothers? Let's talk about the incarnation. Jesus was born as a human, 100% God, 100% man, only 200% being to ever exist. If you're around on Christmas, we talk about that every year. And not although human, he was born from a human woman, his conception was what? miraculous. That's why we talk about the virgin birth every Christmas. Jesus was not conceived by natural means. Instead, the Bible says in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 1 that the Spirit of God did something miraculous in the womb of a girl named Mary, and ultimately Jesus would be born. But who was Jesus's earthly father? A guy named... Joseph, right? This is, right we, know, we know this stuff. If you don't, this, I hope this is helpful for you. Joseph was not part of Jesus' conception. There's reasons before that. You can read Romans chapter 5 and all of those others. But, so his, he didn't have an earthly father, but he did have an earthly mother. That means that Mary and Joseph, later on, after the birth of Jesus, they had physical intimacy, and the Bible actually teaches us that they had several other children, therefore any siblings that Jesus had would be half-siblings. They would have the DNA from Joseph and Mary where Jesus did not because he was divine. That was free. Matthew 13, 35, or fifty-five talks about his brothers. It says, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and his brothers? Jesus' brothers, half-brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas or Jude. Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Second in verse 1, I think this is interesting. Jude describes himself as a servant of Jesus. Your Bible might say the word slave or it might say the word bondservant of Jesus. What's a bondservant? You can read about this, by the way, in Exodus chapter 21. A bondservant is someone who willfully chooses to become the slave of their master. They're not forced into it, they choose that lifestyle. Here's what's interesting. With Jude, with all of Jesus' half-brothers, this wasn't always the case with them. They didn't always believe Jesus was who He claimed to be. Let me show you. John chapter seven, verse five. "For not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. Jesus' family did not believe his claims of divinity. In fact, Mark chapter three, verse 21, it actually says that they thought Jesus was clinically insane. They thought that he had lost his mind because he was going around claiming to be God. Now, simple man, simple understanding of the Scriptures. I also have two half-siblings. I have, one half- <sighs> oh, I have one half-sibling that lives in Florida on the beach. She's doing great. I got another half-sibling that's a 46-year-old rapper in northern Kentucky. So they're just two ends of the spectrum, all right? just That's a true story, okay? I'm just going to be honest with you. If my half-brother ever ever, ever, came to me. and was like, Aaron, we need to talk, man. Uh, I'm God. (laughs) Yeah, we'd we'd put him in a home. You know what I mean? Like, if your sibling ever comes to you and they're like, I am divine, you're gonna think, you're crazy. And that's exactly what Jesus' brothers would have thought about him until the resurrection. Once Jesus conquers death and he rises from the dead and he proves who he is, then everything would have shifted for Jude. Everything shifted for his brothers after the resurrection. I find it interesting. I think there's a lesson for us in here. You notice that Jude does not mention in verse 1 that his primary identity is the biological brother of Jesus. I find that strange. Because I think if you were trying to provide some sort of authority behind your writing, he could have put that right in the beginning. Jude, brother of Jesus. Listen to what i got to say. But that's not what he does. What does Jude say instead? Jude, a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. I think there might be a lesson for you and I in there. Where does your primary identity lie? Is it in Jesus or something else? That was free. A couple other side notes about Jude. First, you'll notice as we get through this letter in the coming weeks, he takes a no-nonsense approach to his writing. He's just like James. Jude is like, here's what the facts are. Don't care if you like them. This is what God said. Then he moves on. I love Jude's style of writing. Second, he gives encouragement to the church at the end. I love that. He doesn't just lay the hammer down. He says, let me encourage the believer. I love that. Second, Jude, and if you flip back a couple of books, 2 Peter are really closely related. I encourage you to read 2 Peter and Jude in your personal time with the Lord this week. Jude, 25 verses, super short book, but of those 25 verses, 16 of them, so two-thirds basically, can be directly tied back to the book of 2 Peter. They, they, they either, either Peter used Jude's writing or Jude used Peter's writing when he was writing this stuff down. Here's the third thing. Second Corinthians 9 verse 5 said that Jude was married. I don't know why that matters, but that's just free. Just He had a mother-in-law, so pray for the guys. I don't know. Something was going on there. But Jude was married. That's free information. Here's the fourth one. Jude is heavily anchored in the Old Testament. 25 verses, nine of them, he references Old Testament scriptures. It's incredible. Here's the last thing we need to know about Jude, and then we'll get into the purpose of the letter. This one's going to throw a lot of us for a loop over the next seven weeks. Jude references, I believe it's nine different times in this letter, um, literature that was outside of the Bible, like literature, things like uh, things known as like the Book of Enoch, things known as the uh, Assumption of Moses, books that we would say are not inspired Word of God. They're, they're what we would call apocryphal books. They're not true, but Jude references them several times. So we're going to have to answer this question in the coming weeks. If we believe the Bible is the Word of God, how do we balance that? How can we have things in the scriptures that are not scripture, that didn't make their way into our Bible? That's the week that Joe's going to preach, so he'll make sure that he take care of that. So let's sum it up. Who's the author? Half-brother of Jesus, submitted to Jesus as Lord, a man from whom what we can tell tended to stay in the shadows with his ministry. He didn't seek much attention because what was he? A servant of Jesus Christ. That was his primary identity. But what's the purpose of the letter? We don't know exactly who this letter was written to outside of being written to Christians. We don't even know where these people were located. Jude, in verse 1, simply tells us, you can see it up on our screen in verse 1, that he's writing to those who were called, those who were loved, or your Bible might say sanctified, and those who were kept. Let me make that easier for you. Jude was writing to those who had been saved by Jesus, that's the called. Those who were becoming more like Jesus, that's the loved. And those who would spend eternity with Jesus, that's the kept. Here's what's interesting. Jude tells us in verse 1 into verse 2 that he had a different intent in mind when he was writing this letter. He says, I was eager to write to you, verse 3, watch this. Dear friends, I was eager to write to you about the salvation that we share. Jude's original intent when he sat down with his pen and paper, he said, I just want to write a letter to a bunch of Christians to let them know that we share a common faith in Jesus and I am encouraged by all of you. Keep going. Why? Because the gospel is the primary thing that we're about as the local church, forever and always. It takes supremacy over everything. But Jude ultimately became aware of false teachers and false doctrine who were infiltrating the church, and his purpose in writing had to shift. To what? Look at what he says. I was eager to write to you about the common faith that we share, but I found it necessary. What he was eager to do and what was necessary to do was different to write to you and appeal to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once and for all. You continue to read down in verse four and five and six, we see those false teachers that Jude is writing about that had snuck into the church. In verse four, he says they'd come in by stealth. They'd snuck into the church. Verse 12 says that they were taking part in what Jude calls the love feast. That's the Lord's Supper, communion that we do here as well at this church. You know what that shows us? That they looked like everybody else. They were just like all the other Christians. But the way they lived and their intentions inside the church was the opposite. What was it? Verse 19, Jude says, they came in to divide and to destroy what God had created. They were adding to the gospel, taking over and destroying the church. You can read in Matthew 13, I would jot this in your notes if you're a note taker. Jesus would have called these people, what he says, are tares among wheat. A tear is simply a weed, but it's a special kind of weed. It's a weed that almost looks identical to wheat. It's hard to tell the difference. It's hard to tell the difference between the two. But a weed is simply something that shouldn't be growing in the midst of something good that is growing. And Jude encourages us, and he encourages these believers, verse 3, to fight. He says, you have to contend for the faith. Boldly expose false teaching in the church and stand firm on the truth of the scriptures, What were these individuals teaching? What were these false teachers talking about that was so divisive? Let's talk about it. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks. What we know based on the book of Jude is that these false teachers were simply resembling a group that was known as the Gnostics. There's a little history for you. The Gnostics didn't show up until the second century, so this was written before that. But these were a version of ultimately what would become the Gnostics. They were a group of false teachers that believed that salvation, right standing with God, among other things, they basically believed that if I could gain some sort of knowledge, if I could reach a higher plane of understanding of the world, then I would truly be right with God. Essentially, they taught that the gospel, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection was insufficient and we needed more knowledge. We needed to know more than we already know. Does this sound familiar, by the way? We've we, we got to progress in our thinking. We have to know more than we know now to truly be saved. Let me tell you something quick. If anybody ever tells you that the work of Jesus on the cross is insufficient to make you right with God, kick them in the throat. <laughs> Run. The gospel is always sufficient for the believer. And Jude is writing about these false teachers that, that were this early form of Gnosticism. And he says in verse 4 that they denied the work of Jesus. In verse 8, he said they rely on dreams for insight into their life to gain some sort of knowledge of God. In verses 12 and 13, he says they're not anchored in any truth. And I think if we're not careful, these false notions can begin to creep their way into our body as well. And it's why we take Jude's call and commission and proclamation to contend for the faith seriously. I'm gonna close with this simple thought, simple story. Years ago, on one of my first trips to Africa, I remember getting onto a pontoon boat of all things on the Nile River there in Uganda. We got it to that boat. There was literally, I'm not making this up, there was baboons surrounding our boat. It was the craziest experience of my life. There were hippos that were right in the water, right next to you, large alligators scattered throughout Once we got into the boat, we coasted probably maybe an hour. I don't remember exactly how long. We just coasted with the current down the river until we made our way to a a giant waterfall. I think it was called Victoria Falls, if I'm remembering correctly. It was a a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But once you get downriver, what do you have to do? you got to get back to where you started. Because to get downriver, we simply floated with the current But we had to go against the current to get back to where we were supposed to be. Current pushing one way and to get home. We had to go the opposite direction. And so what did the captain do? He fired up the engines. And for about the next hour and a half, those engines fought the current because they had a destination that they were supposed to get to. I think that's a good summation of Jude for us this morning. That in our day, if we're not cautious, and they still exist, this wasn't just a first century thing. There's false doctrines, false teachers, false beliefs that will seek to undermine the word of God. They'll try to say that this is irrelevant, that this doesn't matter anymore, that it's outdated, and we shouldn't follow what God says. We've heard this premise before. And we've, I'm, I, you know, we deal with this sometimes. You just need to seek out your truth and just whatever that is for you. And Jude reminds us, no, there's, there's one truth. And anything that seeks to lead us away from that we fight and contend against. And so as the follower of Jesus, we have a choice. I can abandon what God says and embrace these calls for this new way of thinking, these new religious doctrines. Everything is a religion, by the way. If you didn't know that, every belief system is a religion. And I can abandon what the Scripture says and follow this new religions, whatever they are, secular religion, it doesn't matter. Every, every way of thinking is a religion. And I can abandon what the scripture says to chase these other things or we can take Jude's call seriously in verse three to remain faithful to the gospel, to persevere in our faith. And he tells us in verse five, how do we do that? We're empowered by the one who keeps us from stumbling. My encouragement to us over the next seven weeks following today, and let's let's put our noses directly in this text because I think it's very relevant for us and it's a very growth aspect that each one of us needs. Let's contend for the faith that was given to the saints once and for all. The gospel doesn't change. The word of God is the standard by which we live our lives. Anything else, we run from. Let me pray for us. God, we love you so much. Father, thanks again for your word. God, I pray in the coming weeks as we just walk through this, these 25 verses together, teach us, grow us, mold us into the likeness of Jesus. God, as we're wrestling with passages in the scriptures that may be hard to, to grasp, things that we don't fully understand, God, would your spirit enlighten us to give us understanding and to grow us again into the likeness of Jesus Christ. I've got to pray for any of my friends here this morning that maybe they're uncertain if they've ever started a relationship with you, that God, just as your word says, that they would acknowledge that they're a sinner, that their sin has offended a holy God and separated them from you. And God, in and of ourselves, we know based on the scriptures, we have zero ability to be right with God. We have zero ability to make our own way to heaven. The only way is Jesus. And I pray in this moment that knowing that to be true, knowing that their sin has separated them from you, that they would repent and turn from that sin and trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, knowing that when he died on that cross, he paid our sin debt that we owe to God. And when he resurrected, he secured eternity for us. What a gift. God, we love you. I pray now, as we did in the beginning, that as we sing, that our voices would echo through the corridors of heaven. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.